Does the Catholic Church need more immigrants in America to keep it going? Bring them all. Uh, and, and not just to keep them going, to keep us from, from becoming a kind of upper middle class club for people with conservative sexual ethics. You're listening to Beliefs from Religion News Service. I'm Bill Baker. Against a backdrop of repeated revelations of sexual abuses and cover-ups, rebelling bishops and tensions between the Pope and the American Catholic elite, we sit down to take a general view of the state of the Catholic Church. Michael, welcome. Good to be here. Uh, Why is there criticism of the Pope in North America? Is the uh, U.S. Catholic Church uh, kind of out of sync with uh, the Pope? A large and and noisy uh, and very well-funded part of the Catholic Church in the United States is is out of sync with this pope. And more importantly, I think they really felt that they owned the papacy. Uh, These were the uh, uh, people who speak of, you know, the kind of heroic priesthood image of of, uh, St. Pope John Paul II, uh, who, who really have forced that cult upon the church with alarming, and I I think uh, it will turn out, regrettable speed. These would be people who would be familiar to your listeners as someone like George Weigel at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, Robbie George at Princeton University, uh, people who were convinced uh, that uh, there was a perfect fit between uh, the Catholic Church and what it had to teach and American neoconservative politics. And uh, Pope Francis blew all that uh, to shreds and said that's actually not uh, what we're about. And so uh, I think they've felt uh, frustrated with him almost from the first day when it when it became very obvious he had a different agenda and so uh, uh and 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 that that uh, opposition uh to pope francis has only intensified and, and grown as far as american roman catholics go what percentage do you think of all these catholics in america it's hard to kind of figure these things out it is hard and i don't have the internal numbers of how many people watch ewtn uh, but Small. that would be about your 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 ballpark. I think uh, I would be surprised if it's more than, you know, a, a couple of million people. Now that's a, that's a large number of people. On the other hand, you know, there's 50 million Catholics in America, so uh, I don't think it's the majority. Unfortunately, it's also a significant number of of the hierarchy. And there we have a fairly accurate number, which was when Archbishop Vigano came out with this testimony attacking Pope Francis and demanding that he resign. In, in August, uh, there were about 30 U.S. prelates who felt the need to say something praising or at least uh, uh, seconding uh, Archbishop Vigano's comments. That was a very telling number and a very, and there, there, there we can with precision say 30 bishops seem uh, somewhat hostile to the Pope. 30 out of how many? Out of, uh, there are currently 190 uh, 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 incumbent American bishops and maybe another uh, 50 or 60 retired. How has uh, Bishop Vigano been able to speak out so publicly against the Pope? I thought there was kind of a hierarchy in Rome that uh, they had to do what the Pope said. He is off the uh, reservation. I don't know how you say reservation in Italian, but Mm -hmm. uh, this has been a a man who was very bitter, uh, who was first bitter at Pope Benedict. I mean, the whole Vataliques. I I remember before that actually came to the public, a, a Vatican source told me, you know, that he had written this 11-page note to Pope Benedict saying, you can't send me to Washington. And my friend said, you know, that's 10 pages too long. <laughs> and then when he got a no, he wrote another seven-page memo to Pope Benedict, which was at that point seven pages too long. So, so you know, this, is, this was a, a, a crybaby uh, who 
uh, thought very well of himself, thought he was ill-treated, and um, has decided to to share his venom with the church and directed at Pope Francis. That was so obvious as you read that testimony uh, that that he was out to uh, grind some axes uh, that that I was very disappointed anyone gave it uh, any credibility. What does the return of the sex abuse scandal mean for the Pope and for the Catholic Church in America and the world? Oh, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Uh, I am still trying to figure out what happened uh, this summer here in the United States. The Chile situation is different. What happened in Chile this year is what happened to the United States in 2002. But that's not what happened to the United States in, two, in, in 2018. There were no huge revelations of uh, recent incidences of, of clergy sex abuse. These were uh, very well packaged uh, retelling of stories from 30, 40, and 50 years ago. And, and for whatever reason, there was a kind of perfect storm that it, it, it caught, caught fire. And, and I think uh, journalists, uh, as I speak as one, uh, have a lot to answer for. I think they got uh, all worked up into a feeding frenzy and didn't do what journalists do, which is draw distinctions uh, and, and seek corroboration. For instance, this was a grand jury report. We have all heard the old canard about uh, a grand jury being able to indict a ham sandwich. Um, all that went out the window. And when you read the report, there were obvious inconsistencies in it. There were things that were not proven. Uh, and, and even there, there was a low standard of proof. And yet this was accepted as gospel from day one. And I, and I think it's, a, it's, it's problematic because you hear these horrible stories of children being raped. And, and almost nothing else does matter after you hear that, right? And, and so my advice to uh, the bishops that day and subsequently was sackcloth and ashes for six months because no, you, you can't draw distinctions now. Just sackcloth and ashes. There, there's, there's nothing else you can do. And unfortunately, when they tried to make a defense, they only looked worse. And, and it kind of spun out of control from there. But, but I do think also the other, the other part of it that happened this summer was in 2002, uh, the conservative Catholics who today I would link as the opposition to Francis were deeply skeptical of the allegations in 2002. They defended Cardinal Law. They defended Father Maciel, even though there was ample evidence that Maciel was a criminal of the war sort. Um, they were defending him. This time that flipped. And, and, and to the degree that that was a sincere, is a manifest a sincere concern for the victims of clergy sex abuse, uh, I welcome their, their concern with open arms. Insofar as it is a perceived vulnerability on the part of, of a Roman church that is now led by a pope they don't like, shame on them. Um, one of the things that, uh, pope ha that the pope has uh, uh, paid a lot of attention to is preferential treatment for the poor. Would you comment on that, please? This is a common theme in the Latin American church since the Second Vatican Council. And... Uh, the, the night of his election, I was I was going over to uh, the PBS News Hour to uh, to be interviewed, and I got a hold of a of a Monsignor who who I knew, didn't know Bergoglio well, but he said, Michael, the most important thing, and he was a, a Latino. He said the most important thing for an American audience to remember is that in the fifty years since Vatican II, the Latin American Church has never stopped asking this question: What does it mean to exercise a preferential option for the poor? Mm -hmm. What does it mean for the church to stand with the poor? What does it mean to hear the gospel as a poor person hears the gospel? And so this has produced a, a very beautiful theological 
uh, body of works and reflections and, and, a, and a, a focus for the Latin American church that we do not have so much here in the United States. Does the Catholic Church need more immigrants in America to keep it going? Bring them all, uh, and and not just to keep them going, but also to keep us from from becoming a kind of upper middle class club for people with conservative sexual ethics. And I think that's what we were in danger of becoming. And and so the immigrants mm-hmm. who are poor, you know, the gospel is good news for the poor. This is in in the, uh, the fourth chapter of Luke. Jesus announces his ministry, saying, "I bring you good news for the poor." Uh, and it, it shouldn't surprise us entirely that we stop hearing the gospel when we when we cease being poor, or at least we don't hear it with that kind of radical authenticity that it was first preached. The poor still do. You uh, you said something that was very interesting to me, and that is kind of a definition of what an American Catholic is. Uh, do you care to uh, elaborate on what you th- what you would call an American Catholic? It's a Catholic identity, in other words. My, my key thing on Catholic identity is to always insist that we render it in the plural because there are Catholic identities. Um, and this idea that there was that in, in a culture such as ours, which is so rich and diverse, that there would be one way of being Catholic is, is kind of silly. Uh, we're sitting here in, in, in a, a town in Connecticut that has, what, I think four or five Catholic churches. And I'll bet each one has a slightly different audience, slight that the, a new pastor comes in, figures out the lay of the land, is going to preach a little bit more of social justice, maybe a little bit more uh, preaching on the life issues, has a certain calibration. So I think there's great variety in the church, but the most obvious reality is that we are, we are like the country, are becoming a, 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 a church of, of, uh, uh, that is no longer so white and no longer so male and, 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 and no longer so wealthy. What about sexual identity? There, uh, I, again, I, I wish I had uh, uh, the answers. Uh, I'm working on a piece right now about the real danger for raising the issue of LGBT issues at the Synod. Um, human sexuality is so deeply enculturated, and there are, when you have a universal gathering of bishops, obviously the way an issue uh, like that plays out in Africa may be very different from Latin America, which will be very different from, from Western Europe. Uh, and and, and your, uh, Asians and Africans and Latin Americans are not wrong to be suspicious of a kind of ideological colonization of, of Westerners saying, you must do this. Uh, that said, uh, obviously the, the, the Catholic Church has a history uh, starting in the post immediate post-war era, era of embracing universal definitions of human rights. And uh, part of the mark, I think, increasingly of a decent society is the recognition that rights have to be extended to uh, gay and lesbian people. Uh, I just don't think it's a conversation that, that the church as a whole is quite ripe. It, the topic isn't ripe for, for universal consideration. And I, I, my, if Francis called me on the phone and said, what do I do about this? I would just say, leave it to the local churches. Let them know you are leaving it to them. Mm-hmm. Say, you have to work this out at your own for a while, but we're, this, this subject is not ripe. What is the economic viability of the Catholic Church today in America? Uh, we well, it, it, wrong question. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 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 the more we are stripped down, the more we are forced, you know, against our will to give up this huge infrastructure that we built up, uh, the better. Uh, and the faster it is, the better it will be. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I think we saw a, 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 an instance of that in the last couple of weeks with the Kavanaugh hearings, where I think a profound question 
that was raised was what does the Society of Jesus, why are they involved in running elite high schools? Uh, catering to the elite is not necessarily something, uh, it may have made sense in the 16th century when the Jesuits first got going uh, and we were in, embroiled in, in the middle of the Reformation. Uh, but does it make sense now? Uh, and, and if we were to close those down and reorient the church more toward uh, ministering toward unwed mothers, ministering toward immigrants, ministering to uh, the homeless who are everywhere. I just pulled off the highway here in Greenwich and there was a homeless guy begging, you know, and I, I gave him a, a buck. I don't know, you know, uh, his circumstances, but but the poor are everywhere. You don't need in, in America, which is the wealthiest country in, in, in our history, in, in the history of the human race that you can still see poverty everywhere you look, that you don't really have to go seeking it, uh, is a shocking reality that we've sadly uh, become almost numb to. Um, you write about the globalization of indifference. What is that? Uh, this is a phrase that Pope Francis first used uh, to uh, when he was in Lampedusa, which is an entry point for immigrants from Africa into Europe. Uh, it's a small island in the middle of the Mediterranean. And I think it was that what he's after is the idea that it, 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 it becomes exhausting, you know, to be involved in your culture in a way that's ethically uh, and humanly responsible. Uh, you, do, do you, before you book a hotel, do you make sure that it's a union hotel, that they're paying good wages? Uh, when you buy a car, do you make, you know, are you sure that it was uh, made, uh, again, with, with uh, good union jobs? Um, obviously, in the industry of uh, clothing and things like this, we know there are sweatshops that that provide you know the vast majority of our of our of the of the things that are for sale in our stores, and and we become indifferent to it. I I think um, although he did not say this, so let me make that clear. Uh, in in the Latin American community, you have this idea of structures of sin that emerges uh, out of liberation theology, and that becomes uh, accepted by John Paul II uh, writes about this in in, in uh, two of his social encyclicals. So it's not, you know, kind of out there notion, but it's this idea that just to go about your daily business, you're nonetheless supporting sinful systems. And the only thing I could imagine, you know, kind of uh, uh, to, to bring it home very clearly would be, you know, if you were born in 1830 in the American South, you would have participated in the perpetuation of slavery, whether you wanted to or not. Like, like it took a lot to to remove yourself from that system, and so what he's challenging us is that is is this idea that we we put up throw up our hands and say, well, there's really nothing I can do, and he's saying no, we have to look think we have to do things differently, and I would say he's giving us a great example by himself being a pope in a very different way from the way previous popes have been pope. You talked about the pope doing something different, moving from monarchy to another kind of model. What would you, how would you talk about that? Uh, I think this Pope is very devote, again, coming from the Latin American experience, uh, this this deep commitment to synodality, which is not democracy. Uh, in, in the American church, I think we, at Vatican II, we heard about the people of God and we thought, oh, great, we're going to start voting. And you will still see there's a kind of journalistic impulse to take a poll on things as if, you know, that's, uh, uh, you know, how you're going to determine the truth. Uh, and obviously, I think, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but the hierarchic structures of the Roman Catholic Church produced this wonderful man, Pope Francis, and the American people elected Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So democracy is, is, you know, has a lot of explaining to do these days. 
But what synodality is, is the idea that we come together and we discern together, that, that we discuss and we dialogue and we share experiences and perspectives to reach a kind of common agreement that would not have been possible for any one of us to achieve on our own. The idea that together in prayer, and this is a really important part of it, that, that what we, we're coming together not to find a kind of lowest common denominator, it's the opposite of that, is we're coming together in prayer to see what the Holy Spirit is prompting us to do in this situation, and that that is what governance in the church should become about. You're seeing this this month, obviously, we have the Synod of Bishops. This was something that, an, an initiative that uh, began under Pope Paul VI, uh, and under John Paul II, it became a very rote thing. Everyone would give up, stand up, give a five-minute speech. That was kind of the end of it. Uh, uh, Benedict came along. He understood they had become very boring, these synods of bishops. He introduced uh, the karaoke hour. At the, the last hour, it uh, was not formal, formulaic. Anyone could go to the microphone and say, give their two, two bits on any subject. Uh, which was a you know kind of loosened it up a bit. Francis has blown it all open, and is each each synod he has had, they've tried different uh, ways of doing the small group discussions and intermixing that with the speeches and this kind of stuff. So he's he's experimenting with this with with his fellow bishops, uh, and and is, is the result of that is a very different, I would say, a less Roman centered understanding of governing governing the universal church. Michael Sean Winters, thank you. Thank you. Our guest was Michael Sean Winters, journalist and blogger at the National Catholic Reporter. The conversation continues on our Facebook page, and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. Whatever you think of us, come review or comment on our website, religionnews.com slash beliefs. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jonathan Woodward is our producer. The theme music is by Edward Villas. I'm Bill Baker. Thanks for listening.